0: This evening's talk is about samvega. Samvega is a poly term and it's most often translated into English as spiritual urgency. But actually it's a difficult term to translate into English because it includes quite a number of different states of mind. In the classical Buddhist texts, it's spoken about as one being moved or stirred to a sense of urgency to practice, and one being moved to a sense of urgency urgency within practice by what should move one, and then the systematic effort of one so moved. Samvega, spiritual urgency, in itself, it isn't an energy that's at all fraught with any tension or sense of frantic or obsessive quality. It's a state of mind, it's a quality of mind, of heart, that most often comes out of some degree Of understanding of the way of things, understanding the natural laws of how it is, which for some of you may have been sensed or maybe first felt as a sense of the endlessness, the round and round and round in daily life. Or maybe for others of you Felt through some sense or the perception of change, of impermanence, a nietzsche, and the attendant unsatisfactoriness of things because of this. Or some vega may be felt through feeling the enormity or maybe even the subtleties of the suffering in life in general or in one's own life or for some, the experience of some vega comes comes about because of a long accustomed sight or maybe a new sight or one's very own direct experience of the manifestation of bias or prejudice in relationship to race or gender or age. each and all of these experiences and the feelings attended by some vague or maybe not so vague sense that it doesn't really have to be this way, that there's another way and an urge to move towards this potential other way. When Samvega first stirs us, it can be an emotional state that might be somewhat difficult, might be disturbing, until it finds a clear and healthy direction to connect to. While at the same time this stirring energy of sanvega has the power, it has the power in itself to move us to connect in that direction. And actually, all the way along our practice, Samvega is a very essential energy, the motivating energy of successful practice. From my own experience, from one perspective, I would describe Samvega as the feeling of being stirred and inspired to a sense of spiritual urgency by phenomena that goes on within my own body-mind continuum, my own body-mind process, and by phenomena that goes on around me in the world. Phenomena in the world that I may be very directly connected with in some way or other, or sometimes that I'm just simply an observer of, with some Vega in these particular times, often being an inner response to any of these various worldly occurrences that happen outside of a formal practice setting. And of course, it's also a spiritual urgency that arises in direct relationship to the experiences within the practice itself, in my own practice. A kind of urgency or inspiration that arises, for instance, out of a moment of a direct, mindful connection and a clear comprehension of some moments of wise reflection or particular experience that inspire me, that move me towards a deeper and more sustained effort in my practice. That samvega that moves me, that stirs me again and again and again towards letting go of, towards relinquishing the painful contraction, however subtle or however strong, of clinging to anything. When Vega is present, It's sometimes experienced as an urgency, sometimes as an ardency, an inspired heart, mind, a passion, we could say, for spiritual practice. Something that I'm sure each of you has probably felt at times. And for some of you, an experience that you've had probably many, many times. And very likely for everyone here at least in part, what brought you here to this retreat. As a a Dhamma teacher, your ardency and your sincerity in your practice very much moves me, very much inspires me. And I think it's safe to say that this is true for all of the people that I've had the honor to teach with. This is really one of the wonderful aspects of uh, for all of us being here right now, together, both yogis and teachers alike, of living in a practice community such as this one. Even if it's just for a short while, we move and inspire each other to go to deeper and deeper levels of practice just by simply being here together in this setting. So, more specifically, what is it that moves and inspires us towards practicing? And what along the way of our practice keeps urging us, moving us towards sustaining and deepening in our practice? What might move us outwardly? What might move us inwardly? towards this sense of spiritual urgency? What moved you to come here to practice now? To come to this retreat? What moves you towards spiritual practice? There's a very beautiful account of how Prince Siddhartha Gautama came face-to-face with what are called the Four Heavenly Messengers, while being driven in his chariot through the royal city after his youthful years of isolation in a kind of make-believe world. This account of his seeing old age, sickness, death, and a person dedicated to understanding the truth, a person dedicated to awakening. And maybe this story is more than just symbolic or metaphor, considering the possibility that these four messengers, these four very common events of life, old age, sickness, death, And though not so common in our time and culture, the many and quite obvious truth-seekers that were so much a part of the culture and the time that Siddhartha grew up in. Considering the possibility that the great, ripe mind of young Siddhartha on those morning chariot rides saw and experienced these very common aspects of life, much more deeply than had ever occurred before to him. To such a degree that he was urgently moved to leave the riches, leave the ease and the comfort of his life. Urgently moved to search for a path to awakening. Awakening from the ache of delusion in relationship to the complacent lull and the familiar habits of his life, and the overt suffering in life that touched him so very deeply, so profoundly during those morning chariot rides. Isn't it really the same case for us? That most of the time, with the many, many times that we've seen these messengers in our own life, both outwardly and inwardly that we've reacted reacted maybe by ignoring them or by distracting ourselves in many many ways or even pretending or believing that something else is happening until somehow at least one of these messengers touches us very deeply and we respond. We respond, in fact, in a similar way, as did Siddhartha, by being moved and inspired to seek a path of truth, to seek a path of wisdom. We're somehow stirred to walk a path that constantly, and not constantly, feel overrun, overrun with sadness or anguish or fear or attachment anger, confusion, in relationship to all the various occurrences of life. Our closest surroundings are full of stirring things, stirring in the sense of Samvega. And if we generally don't perceive them as such, isn't it really because of our habits? the habits that make our vision dull, our heart insensitive or reactive. And this can even happen in relationship to the Buddhist teachings. We may have encountered, at times, meh, powerful intellectual and emotional stimulation in relationship to the teachings and the practice. But at times, even this impetus can kind of lose its freshness, lose its impelling force, as probably some of you have experienced at times. The remedy is to constantly renew it by turning to the fullness of life around us and within us which constantly illustrates the Four Noble Truths in ever-new variations, over and over again, illustrating the first truth of what suffering is, what it really is. And the second truth, its cause, its origin, being the clinging relationship to what can't really be clung to. And the third truth, that there's an end to suffering. The solution, so to say. The solution being not clinging to what can't be clung to. And the fourth truth, the fourth noble truth, being the way of putting the solution into effect, so to say. Putting it into effect via the path that each of us are engaged in walking at our very own pace, right here, right now, right here in this retreat. As very likely some of you have experienced and know, there can be a moment of a direct vision within our own body-mind experience of these truths, or quite unexpectedly a degree of understanding of one or more of these truths can show up in relationship, for instance, to what might be a fresh seeing of our habitual reactions of fear or anger or grief or clinging or insight, wisdom, might arise unexpectedly in relationship, for instance, to a long, accustomed sight of some manifestation of poverty in the world, or maybe a child, a weeping child, or in relationship to the distress of someone that you regularly have some degree of contact with, or maybe in relation to the unaccustomed sight the unaccustomed connection with the illness of a close person, a loved one, or in relationship to one's own illness or bodily discomfort, or myriad other kinds of flavors of experiences, each having the power to startle us, so to say, to promote a reflective response and to stir a sense of urgency in our resolve to practice this path that leads to the end of suffering. Or we might be stirred by directly seeing and knowing the changing, impermanent, ephemeral, or not-self nature of things through seeing our own experiences of body and mind more directly, more clearly, and more and more subtly. A moment of knowing the impermanent nature of things. Or possibly a moment of knowing that it's all, all not self, all anicca. Phenomena just arising and passing according to conditions. with these moments of seeing and knowing, we're often urgently stirred and inspired to go deeper in what is our already chosen path of practice, to go deeper towards the end of suffering. Samvega asks us, we could say, to step out of our everyday ordinary conditioned habits, to step out of our conditioned inertia. Each of us have many, many stories, many experiences in our meditation practice and within our life as a whole. Stories that in fact exhibit this knowing and the manifestation of samvega. And it's very often part of what's heard in talking with you during practice interviews. And sometimes you don't even know that's what you're saying. There are quite a number of stories and dialogues in the suttas telling of the Buddhist disciples being stirred toward practicing with a more vital spiritual urgency. And the stirring being done by the Buddha himself or the stirring be done being done by one of the arahants, the enlightened disciples, or by one of the practicing devas. Devas are beings whose practice has brought them to be dwelling for lengths of time in beautiful states, but who aren't yet awakened, not yet fully enlightened or awakened. They're not yet fully free of suffering. There is a section of short suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya called Connected Discourses in the Woods, where various woodland-dwelling devas approach certain bhikkhus, certain monks, who are practicing in these woodland thickets. And so I'd like to share uh, a few of these encounters between the bhikkhus, the monks, and the devas. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhu was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. And on this particular occasion, uh, the bhikkhu had gone to his spot in the forest for his day of practice. But all the while, he kept thinking unwholesome thoughts of strong desire connected with the household life. When the deva that inhabited that particular woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhu, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And these, uh, all of these little vignettes are uh, in verse. And this is the bhikkhus, or the deva speaking. Desiring seclusion, you entered the woods. Yet your mind gushes outwardly, Remove, man, the desire for people. Then you'll be happy, devoid of lust. And in this case it doesn't necessarily mean sexual lust, but lust for things, lust for food, lust for various experiences. And the deva goes on. You must abandon discontent. Be mindful. Let us remind you of the way of the good. Hard to cross, indeed is the dusty abyss, don't let sensual dust drag you down. Just as a bird littered with soil with a shake flakes off the sticky dust, so a bhikkhu, strenuous and mindful with a shake, (coughs) flicks off the sticky dust. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. This next dialogue takes place shortly after the Buddha's death, after his Parinibbana. His closest attendant and cousin, Ananda, had been very strongly encouraged to attain ar- arhatship before the first Buddhist council convened, which was scheduled to begin during the next rains retreat. So Ananda had gone to the Kosala country, and entered into a forest abode to meditate. But when the people in that area found out that he was there, they continually came to him, lamenting over the the death of the Buddha. And so Ananda felt that he had to constantly instruct them in the law of impermanence. The forest-dwelling Deva, who lived in that area, was aware that the council, in fact, could only succeed if Ananda attended it as an arahant. And so he went to Ananda to provoke him and to inspire him to resume his meditation practice. And this is the sutta. On one occasion, the Venerable Ananda was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, Venerable Ananda was excessively involved in instructing lay people. Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for the Venerable Ananda, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And this is the deva speaking. Having entered the thicket at the foot of a tree, Having placed Nibbana in your heart, meditate, Gotama. Now, because Ananda was the Buddha's cousin, he had the same family name of Gotama. Meditate, Gotama, and don't be negligent. What will all this hullabaloo do for you? Then the Venerable Ananda, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of spiritual urgency. I picked uh, this particular dialogue to read because though we're not in the same position as Ananda, um, (laughs) we're certainly very often quite caught up, quite seduced by the seeming necessity to engage in the hullabaloo of various circumstances, both externally and internally, and Neglect or maybe even lose our practice and instead go for these things. To me, this little verse quite beautifully and quite clearly points out the importance of keeping our priorities straight, keeping our priorities straight and clear. Not to neglect what needs to be attended to, but to know when we're seduced, unnecessarily, and maybe even inappropriately into the Hullabaloo. And another verse. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhu was dwelling in Vesali, in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, there was an all-night party being held in Vesali. Then that bhikkhu, lamenting as he heard the clamor of instruments, the gongs, and all the music coming from Vasali, recited this verse. This is the bhikkhu. We dwell in the forest, all alone, like a log rejected in the woods. On such a splendid night as this, who is there worse off than us? Then that deva that inhabited the woodland thicket having compassion for that bhikkhu, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. As you dwell in the forest, all alone like a log rejected in the woods, many are those who yearn for your state. A forest dweller, subsisting on alms food, with few wishes, content, Many are those who envy you, as hell beings envy those in the heaven realms. Then the bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The next verse is regarding a a bhikkhu who continued thinking thoughts of ill will, thoughts of harming, and of sensuality while he was practicing in the woods. And the Deva who inhabited that same woodland thicket out of compassion and wishing to stir up a sense of samvega in him spoke to him and spoke these verses to the Bhikkhu. Because of attending carelessly you sir are eaten by your thoughts. Having relinquished the careless way And careless meaning, in this sense, uh, meaning attending to things as permanent, attending to things as self, and as desirable, because they're pleasurable. Having relinquished the careless way, you should reflect carefully. And in this sense, reflecting carefully means means attending to the true characteristics of things as impermanent as non-self and thus as unsatisfactory in nature so attending to things you should reflect carefully and then the deva goes on to say by basing your thoughts in the teacher and in this case the Buddha on the Dhamma on the Sangha and on your own virtues you will surely attain to gladness and to rapture, and to happiness as well. And then when you are suffused with gladness, you'll make an end to suffering. Then the bhikkhu stirred up by that deva acquired a sense of urgency. The last verse I'd like to share with you is about a bhikkhu who after returning from his alms-round and then eating his meal in the woodland thicket where he was practicing every day, he would go down every day to a nearby pond and sniff a red lotus. And when the deva who lived in that same thicket saw this, she thought, having received a meditation subject from the Buddha and entered into the forest to meditate, this bhikkhu is instead Meditating on the scent of flowers. If his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. Let me draw near and reproach him. So, out of compassion and wishing to stir up some vega, the Deva addressed the Bhikkhu as follows. And this particular little sutta is called The Thief of Scent. <laughs> And this is the Davis speaking. When you sniff this lotus flower, an item that has not been given, this is one factor of theft. You, dear sir, are a thief of scent. And the bhikkhu responds, I do not take, I do not damage. I sniff the lotus from afar. So for what reason do you say that I am a thief of scent? one who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers, one of such rough behavior, why is he not spoken to? And the Deva responds, When a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to him, but it is to you that I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere hair's drop, hair's tip of evil appears as big as a cloud. And the bhikkhu responds, Surely, Spirit, you understand me, and you have compassion for me. Please, O Spirit, speak to me again whenever you see such a deed. And then the Deva responds, maybe surprisingly. It surprised me when I first read this. The deva responds, We don't live with your support, nor are we your hired servant. You, bhikkhu, should know for yourself the way to a good destination. Teaching him independent practice. (laughs) (laughs) Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. So it seems that amongst those of us then and now, those who over 2,500 years ago were devoted to the teachings and the practice of the Buddha, and those of us right here, right now, who are quite sincerely practicing, it seems that maybe things haven't changed much. (laughs) Our human predicament, crosses time and culture. The teachings are really timeless. The solution that the Buddha offers to our karmic predicament is as relevant today as it was in India when these verses were spoken. When Samvega is kept alive or renewed in various ways and to varying degrees. We experience a release, a release of energy and courage that helps the developing and the blossoming of faith. The word for faith in Pali is sadha, and confidence, pasada. All, each of these qualities being very essential in helping us to break through what for some of you might be a sense of timidity or maybe hesitation or maybe fear or doubt or maybe even complacency in your practice. These last five states of mind, timidity, hesitation, fear, doubt, complacency, always coming from, always based in our habitual routine and conditioned ways of living and thinking. The Buddha, countless times and in countless ways exhorted his followers to arouse some vega. And in speaking to a group of his disciples in one sutta, he says this, rouse yourselves, sit up, what good is there in sleeping? And sleeping in this case means the sleep of ignorance, the sleep of delusion. What good is there in sleeping? For those afflicted by disease, in this case meaning the disease or disease of suffering, the disease of constant dissatisfaction. Rouse yourself, sit up, what good is there in sleeping? For those of you for those of you afflicted by disease struck by the arrow of craving, what sleep is there? Rouse yourselves. Sit up. Resolutely train yourselves to attain peace. Go beyond this clinging to pleasures of the six sense doors, to which humans and most devas are attached, and which they seek. Don't waste your opportunity. When the opportunity has passed, they sorrow when consigned to the realms of suffering, confusion, and anguish. And he goes on to say, Negligence is a taint, and so is the greater negligence growing from it. By earnestness and understanding, withdraw the arrow. The traditional metaphor for practice is that it crosses over, crosses over the stream to the further shore. the Buddhist attitude towards life is about keeping one foot, so to say, out of the mainstream and on the ground, the ground of a sense of spiritual urgency, the ground of samvega. The Buddha was so confident in the solution that he found to the predicament of the unsatisfactory round, the cycle of birth, aging, and death which is actually occurring moment to moment to moment for us, that not only does he ask us to not close our eyes to this reality, but to also engage in a moment to moment observation of the cycle and to be completely honest with ourselves. In the process, the Buddha's confidence was so clear and so strong that he called the reality of suffering the first noble truth, which, from this perspective, we could say is really a gift that confirms our most sensitive and direct experiences of things. And then from the gift of this first Noble Truth, the Buddha asks us to become even more sensitive, even more sensitive to the point where we see, where we know that the true cause of suffering is not somewhere out there, not coming from some outside thing or some outside being, but that it's coming from in here in here, in the craving and the clinging and the fear that's present in our own mind. And then the Buddha, in his great confidence, coming directly from his own experience and often using himself as an example, confirms that there's an end to suffering, that there's a very available release from the cycle. And he offers us away to that release by the development of particular noble qualities of mind noble qualities of heart moral and ethical responsibilities sila mindfulness clear comprehension energy joy and happiness tranquility concentration equanimity loving-kindness, compassion, faith, confidence, all of these qualities and capacities of heart, of mind, really sprouting out of the original energy of spiritual urgency, samvega vega, that at one point led us to look for a solution to our predicament. Our predicament has a very practical solution a solution that's within the powers of every human being, a solution that, in fact, we begin to have a growing faith in. Maybe, possibly, if we've read the many stories and studied the many teachings within the enormous breadth of the Buddha's discourses. But really, most importantly, that we come to know out of our own direct experience, out of our own direct experience through our practice. So the Buddhist attitude towards life both cultivates samvega and is the solution or the path that develops out of a sense of spiritual urgency, out of samvega. As our faith in the solution to our predicament grows, as it develops, as it deepens, it, in a sense, is what gives us the energy to live. The last story I'd like to share with you this evening is maybe a somewhat unlikely one from the contemporary writer Annie Dillard. It's a story that I personally found very inspiring, and it evoked uh, quite a spiritual urgency in me the first time that I read it many, many years ago. And then again, it had the similar effect on me when I came across it more recently. So I'd like to share a few excerpts from a chapter called Living Like Weasels from Annie Dillard's book, Teaching a Stone to Talk. Last week I startled a weasel, who startled me, and we exchanged a long glance. Weasel, I'd never seen one wild before. He was ten inches long, thin as a curve, a muscled ribbon, brown as fruitwood, soft-furred, alert. His face was fierce, small, and pointed as a lizard's. He would have made a good arrowhead. There was just a dot of chin, maybe two brown hairs worth, and then the pure white fur began that spread down his underside. He had two black eyes. I didn't see any more than you see a window. The weasel was stunned into silence as he was emerging from beneath an enormous shaggy wild rose bush four feet away. I was stunned into stillness, twisted backward on a tree trunk, our eyes locked and someone threw away the key. Our look was as if two lovers or deadly enemies met unexpectedly on an overgrown path when each had been thinking of something else, a clearing blow to the gut. It was also a bright blow to the brain, or a sudden beating of brains with all the charge and intimate grate of rubbed balloons. It emptied our lungs. It filled the forest, moved the fields, and drained the pond. The world dismantled and tumbled into that black hole of eyes. He disappeared. And that was only last week, and already I don't remember what shattered the enchantment. I think I blinked. I think I retrieved my brain from the weasel's brain and tried to memorize what I was seeing. And the weasel felt the yank of separation. I waited motionless, my mind suddenly full of data, my spirit with pleadings, but he didn't return. I tell you I've been in that weasel's brain for 60 seconds, and he was in mine. Brains are private places, muttering through unique and secret tapes. But the weasel and I both plugged into another tape simultaneously for a sweet and shocking time. Can I help it, if it was a blank? I would like to learn, or remember, how to live. I don't think I can learn from a wild wild animal how to live in particular. But I might learn something of the purity of living in the physical senses and the dignity of living without bias or motive. The weasel lives in necessity and we live in choice, hating necessity and dying at last ignobly in its talons. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. I remember muteness as a prolonged and giddy fast, where every moment is a feast of utterance received and ingested. Time and events are merely poured, unremarked, and ingested, directly like blood pulsed into my gut through a jugular vein. We can live any way we want. People take vows of poverty, chastity, obedience, even of silence, by choice. The thing to do is stock your calling in a certain skilled and supple way to locate the most tender and live spot and plug into that pulse. This is yielding, not fighting. A weasel doesn't attack anything. A weasel lives as he's meant to, yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of single necessity. I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your one necessity and not let it go, to dangle from it limp wherever it takes you. And then even death, where you're going no matter how you live, cannot you part. Seize it and let it seize you up aloft even till your eyes burn out and drop, let your musky flesh fall off in shreds Let your very bones unhinge and scatter, loosened over fields, over fields and woods, lightly, thoughtless, from any height at all, from as high as eagles. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will and um, a poem from another contemporary woman writer Mary Oliver who made the world who made the swan and the black bear Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who is eating sugar out of my hand. Who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down. Who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? In the light of Sam Vega, my glasses back on... (laughs) In the light of Samvega, it feels appropriate to close the talk with the Buddha's last words just before his death. Words that he offered to his monastic and lay disciples to instill a sense of Samvega in them. Really to exhort them to just keep going, keep going along the path. And this particular quote comes from a slightly expanded version of these words that come from a Tibetan uh, version of the Parinibbana Sutta. So the last words of the Buddha. O bhikkhus, do not grieve. Even if I were to live in the world for as long as a kalpa, which is a really, really long time, (laughs) even if I were to live in the world for as long as a kalpa our coming together would have to end you should know that all things in the world are impermanent are of a nature to decay coming together inevitably means parting do not be troubled for this is the nature of life diligently practicing right effort you must seek liberation immediately Within the light of wisdom, destroy the darkness of ignorance. Nothing is secure. Everything in this life is precarious. Always wholeheartedly seek the way of liberation. All things in the world, whether moving or non-moving, are characterized by disappearance and instability. Stop now. Do not speak time is passing, I'm about to cross over, this is my final teaching. So let's sit silently for just a couple of moments.